real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, we're back again. Nathan Romas with you here and today we have Ben Click, a retired sergeant from the Canadian Forces. And Ben, uh, a little bio on Ben here. It's Ben is a lifelong serious student of the rifle. He's a good old farm boy who spent 20 years in the Canadian Army and the majority of it behind a rifle. And he's a husband and father and he's happily retired and spends his time teaching mental management and marksmanship to military, law enforcement, and civilians. He's also the owner of Sierra 64 Riflecraft. Uh, so welcome, Ben. Hey, well, thanks very much, Nathan, for having me. Yeah, and am I saying that right? I should ask this just before, but I forgot. It's Sierra 64 or Sierra 64? Yeah. Sierra 64. Okay, perfect. <laughs> That's, I kind of was trying to remember from back being in the Mounties. That's how they kind of talk. Right. So maybe some of that lingo kind of yeah, comes it, from the Yeah, it's like a call sign. Yeah, yeah. you got so um, we're happy to have you here today. Uh, we had this kind of booked for a little while, so I'm glad this can finally happen. And uh, let's start at the beginning, uh, where we usually start with some of our guests. And tell us where where you come from. Tell us about growing up and how you kind of got to where you are today. Right on. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was born in Victoria, BC, but by the time I was nine, I was living kind of a Boy Scout dream. I was Living on the edge of the wilderness, my family had moved uh, from an urban environment out to uh, literally the edge of the wilderness, a uh, mile and a half from a real road, no power, no water. And uh, I was a, a part of my, uh, my mom and dad, <clears throat> excuse me, building a uh, beautiful log home and a farm on the side of a mountain uh, just below the tree line. Uh, and it was a great place to grow up. We were about half an hour from a town called Smithers. Uh, went to school there. Graduated on a Thursday, joined the army on a Monday, wow. and I uh, joined the army in 1985 to kill communists. That was my stated goal at the time. I uh, spent 20 years uh, initially with the Prince Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. A good part of my time was with the Canadian Airborne Regiment, and then I finished up in a staff position at a kind of a divisional headquarters uh, and left in 2004. Okay. Yeah. So when you, uh, you're talking about starting out with the military and that was in 1985, yeah. what's, uh, what's kind of the rhetoric in the news and everything going on? Cause I mean, all you ever hear about is the U S and the Russians being at odds, but, uh, you don't hear much about the Canadian history side of things. So what was that like? Well, it was very different. Uh, of course from now that it was definitely the cold war, the cold war was still on. I mean, when I was a young child in Victoria, we did the duck and cover in school. And oh, really? uh, yeah, absolutely. And the sire, the air aid warnings uh, went off every day at noon in my hometown, Smithers. Uh, that was, that was kind of the way it was. I mean, honestly, as a, as a young child, I didn't expect to grow up to, to adulthood. I, I seriously anticipated a, a global thermonuclear war before, before I, uh, I reached adulthood. Um, so when I did graduate, uh, and I, I, I guess I'm about third or fourth generation military. Uh, so it wasn't that it was expected. My parents did a great job of never thrusting an expectation of service on me. 
but it was certainly uh, certainly firmly in my mind to, to go off and do that. Okay. So uh, uh, went down to the recruiting center before graduating, um, and they showed you cool videos of some guy jumping out of the bush and rolling around and shooting stuff and blowing stuff up. And in my 18-year-old mind, that was exactly what I wanted to do with my life. So, wow. uh, yeah, uh, they offered me a couple positions, uh, and I ended up uh, with a PPCLI, went through the training in, uh, in Cornwallis, Nova Scotia, uh, Wainwright, Alberta. And uh, like most recruiters, they promised me Victoria, BC. And so during my training, they told us, oh, you're all going to Calgary. I'm like, no, Sergeant, I'm going to Victoria. And they're like, you're going to Calgary. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to Calgary. Um, I was a young warrior monk in my own mind, and I was going to be single till I was 30. And uh, then my, my wife was temporarily in the country, and she was only going to stay a short time. So I ruined her plan. She ruined mine. We were married by the time I was 21. Okay. Uh, 30, still married 33 years later. And uh, had an opportunity to go off to uh, the Canadian Airborne Regiment. Wow, and uh, uh, that was that was certainly my goal at the time. So, did you always kind of want to go into the infantry side of things, or was there anything else that had initially interested you? Maybe you thought you were going on a different path. Well, the the only thing I knew for sure was the the advice I received from my grandfather, who was a tanker in World War II, and his his entire advice was, "Don't go armored." Oh, uh, yeah. Why is that? Uh, pretty high casualty rate. Okay. And he'd been through some pretty tough stuff uh. Uh, during World War II, and that was his only advice: is not don't, don't end up in a tank. Mm-hmm. So, uh, definitely wanted to be a paratrooper. Uh, wanted to run around the woods, blow stuff up, and uh, and that's what I got to do. I said this many times on this podcast. Even when I was uh, getting into policing, and this is 2011, all the recruiting posters are just they look like the Lethal Weapon movie poster, you know, or and. Uh, that's kind of what your image of everything was. And maybe that's because I grew up in the nineties uh, and it was all about action heroes, but it's, it's very different now. And even the military sure. is very different now. So how they're recruiting the style uh, uh, that they use to recruit people. And then just the images, images that they per- portray. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So yeah, you end up in there and then you go uh, off to the airborne can you talk a bit about like some of your experiences in the military? Yeah, sure. Um, just back to your recruiting thing there. It's funny because, uh, you know, in, in my head, it was about doing all the things I wanted to do. But like any organization, they had to reach the maximum number of people they could. And the economy was good in the 1980s. And mm-hmm. uh, the stature of the military was not very high. Uh, so their recruiting message was join the Army, get excellent technical training, and then go back to civilian street and make a life for yourself. It was kind of the inverse of what I expected it to be. So they're like selling you on the trades aspect of it. They were, they were explaining to you what the benefit to you would be, Mm. which was kind of the opposite of what I, what I kind of expected to be. And they weren't saying, Hey, we're going off to war. Not at all. Communism. Yeah. No. Okay. No. And this was before all the, uh, blue beret UN flag waving, Mm. uh, propaganda that, that came later. Okay. Uh, it was it was definitely aimed at trying to recruit the individual to get a good get a good job for later on. All right, uh, and that's that's not what I was looking for. And and the army at the time was stunningly poor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the amount of money available was just nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were we we're certainly an impoverished army at the time, and that's that's come and gone. But I mean, we've never spent the money on the military that we we even promised NATO. We've never even reached half of our stated goal of 
of funding the military, even in the middle of Afghanistan. This would be the uh, what you see in the news now where they talk about like the 2% of GDP? Correct, correct. Okay. Yeah, the stated amount that we agreed to, I believe, is 4%, and we've never even approached 2%. Mm. So... Uh, yeah, so for me, now I've heard that, oh, we're trying to reach 2%. I'm like, wait a minute, that's, that's only half of what we said we would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did impact our training. My, my initial training as an infantryman uh, was very minimal, very minimal. Uh, and that, yeah, I mean, it, we reached the goal of when I came out, I was a shaved head 18-year-old who thought I was God's gift to, to, to the Army. I was certainly convinced we were the... We were Canadians, and when you know we were the finest fighting machines in in human history, mm-hmm. uh, and you know later on life experience, it's like, oh wait a minute, <laughs> how little I knew. We get by on a lot of luck sometimes. Yeah, and- <laughs> more luck than skill. <laughs> yeah, and not the best, not the best strategy. Um, so uh, so yeah, I finished the training, uh, went and got some great opportunities in the battalion uh, in Calgary. It's a great city to be in. Um, Went off, climbed some mountains, uh, learned to drive some vehicles, uh, learned to do basic reconnaissance, um, and uh, spent some time in a signals platoon. And uh, I almost feel like I should apologize to the people I serve with because uh, I was a pretty cranky 19-year-old. This is, running a radio was not what I expected it to, you know, what I expected <laughs> to do in the army, and, yeah. and I was I was pretty whiny about it. You know, I, I was certainly not serving uh, with a service heart. So you got in, you want to get after it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and there I was stuck behind a, a communications post and, and frankly not doing the best job I was. So I think the boss got rid of me. First <laughs> opportunity he had, and I, I got to do a year of biathlon for the Army, the skiing and shooting thing. Oh, really? And this, Yeah, it was right before the uh, 1988 Olympics. And uh, I think that the intent was, like a lot of countries, was to produce many of the Olympic teams out of the military because it allowed them to still claim amateur status Mm. Uh, and but still fund their 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 athletes. Uh, so I don't know if anybody from the military ended up on the 1988 biathlon team. I don't think they did, but it was a great way to get fit and shoot for like a solid year. Yeah. So it was it was certainly part of my part of my vision for training and development. And somebody else's dime. Absolutely. They pay for the ammo. Absolutely. Yeah. I always and I will now say thank you to the Mr. Ch- Mr. and Mrs. Taxpayer for. Uh, for all the ammunition, it's been great. <laughs> yeah. So where do you kind of go from there? What is, what's your journey like? Uh, well, I'd, I was lucky enough to get onto a, a jump course, uh, learned to fall out of airplanes up here in Edmonton. And uh, they posted me out to Petawawa, Ontario. And <clears throat> excuse me, I'd arrived just as the unit had uh, been on an overseas posting. So it was, it was kind of a ghost town when I arrived. And... Uh, not knowing really what to expect, uh, sat around the barracks for about a week, and then everybody came back from leave, and it was right into the stuff I had always dreamed of doing. Where are you posted at this time? Uh, into Petawawa, Ontario, and it yeah. was two commando of the Canadian Airborne Regiment. Uh, at the time, uh, the, the Airborne was many things over the years. When I got there at the time, there were three rifle commandos, uh, about 120 people each. And each of the regular infantry battalions fed each of the commandos. So one commando was from the Van Dues in Quebec, uh, two commandos from the PPCLI, and then the Royal Canadian Regiment, um, based at the time mainly in eastern uh, Canada and, and uh, Germany, they fed the three commando. Uh, so there are about 120 guys from the PPCLI, 
into commando and uh, right away there was a two-week indoctrination selection process uh, lots of running around with a rucksack uh, shooting learning basic demolitions uh, how to fall out of a helicopter into the water and how to walk really long distances uh, and that you know that's the stuff that I, I joined for Hey, as a, when you say commando, that so that this is like, uh, would this be considered special forces, or is it that just is it infantry with a bunch more courses? What's kind of the classification? That, that's a great question. There, there, at the time, there was no clear answer. Uh, we always say special forces like Special Olympics. Uh, everybody wears a helmet. There's lots of sport workers, and everybody gets a medal. Mm. Um, it uh, the airborne suffered at times from a lack of a clear vision, but at the time. Uh, we were certainly a uh, multi-delivery. I mean, we were called the airborne, but we didn't just fall out of airplanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it was a ship to boat, boat to shore, uh, whether it was helicopters, whether it was a long walk, whether it was vehicles, uh, whether it was, I mean, most of the focus was falling out of airplanes uh, by static line and free fall. But uh, the delivery method was secondary to the mission, which was uh, usually direct, what we call now direct action stuff, so raids, ambush, area denials, patrolling. It wasn't the standard infantry stuff of, of advance to contact or uh, uh, defensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were defending out of trenches. We, we certainly weren't capable of that. We were lightly equipped, heavily armed, and, and, uh, and big on movement rather than armor. I think I would imagine now things are more structured. So when we say special forces, it's like clear cut, defined role. You fit into this category, you do these things. Mm -hmm. not saying they can't do other things, but um, it's just, yeah, more specialized. Whereas before it sounds like it was kind of, hey, here's some courses and hope you survive kind of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Again, more through luck than skill. Mm -hmm. There's five core special forces mission and the Airborne Regiment did two of them, which was direct action and special reconnaissance. Okay. Um, uh, And yeah, you know, we always say that we made it up as we went along and uh, enthusiasm should should never be mistaken for competence, Mm -hmm. but uh, there was a real core of competence at the time it was technically a three-year posting. I got to be there seven years. Um, and when I got to two commandos, several of the guys have been there four and five years, usually the better guys. So there was a, a real core of competence in the, uh, in the commando that it, it, it's one of the principles of, you know, of the power of the pack is that you become like the people you're around. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there were, there were many guys when I first got there, I thought, oh, yeah, that guy's really checked out. That guy's amazing. And then like that guy's like, yeah, he's pretty good. You know, and years later, I see the guy back in a regular battalion. I'm like, wow, you're a piece of crap. Yeah. Uh, but when you're there and you're around all these other people, you rise to the uh, you rise to the level of the people around you. And that certainly was the case uh, in the Airborne. What do you, what's your mentality like at that time where, so, you know, you're a younger guy, just full of testosterone. You're out there trying to get after it, get in the fight. And, uh, but are you thinking at that time at all? You know, I could get killed. Is that a really a, I'm not saying an important factor, but is that something you really even think of? I, I can tell. I can speak for myself. I, uh, I didn't. Uh, it, it was there in my mind, but at the time, uh, with proper training, any soldier believes they're bulletproof, mm-hmm. eighteen feet tall, and uh, you know, and, and capable of anything. Um, later on, as I, I learned more. Uh, and got more training and certainly more experience. 
uh, you get over that, uh, they call it the yellow belt syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect, where you, you, you get to a point where you realize, like, holy crap, I know so little. Uh, and certainly when later on, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was selected and got to the, uh, the Pathfinder platoon, I looked around, I'm like, you know, like, wow, there's some, there's some studs here. Like, yeah. I was solidly in the bottom half of that platoon, and, and it, it made me realize I had doubt my game. Mm-hmm. And by that time, when you look around, you train that closely with that caliber of people, you get to level of, you realize like we can do just about anything. Uh, but you also realize that the large amount of it does depend on dumb luck. Mm-hmm. You can be the biggest, toughest monster in the world. And if your aircraft gets shot down, there is absolutely nothing you can do. Yeah. You know, you, you step on a landmine, uh, there is nothing you can do. There's just dumb luck. Yeah. So it's, I think at a certain p- certain point of maturity and development, uh, I realized that this was a very real and very uh, very lethal. I think uh, the way that might translate into the policing world is that we get a lot of calls we go to where people say, "Okay, uh, this person has a gun, and we got to approach this house somehow." And you never know if there's somebody kind of laying and waiting for you and really we're very vulnerable when we're mm-hmm. moving from the vehicle to a building from one side of a building to another side, uh, especially being in, uh, you know, an urban environment, there's windows everywhere. There are lots of other people around. You don't know who's friends with who. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of times where you look back at it or you maybe look at the environment you just walked through and you think, Holy shit, uh, I could have gone really bad or, wow, I didn't realize I was walking here when I shouldn't have been. Uh, yeah, hindsight. Yeah. yeah, and hats off to you guys. Like, you know, hopefully you're not facing groups of 30 people with rocket launchers and belt-fed support weapons. <laughs> but you face that level. It doesn't have to be a war for it to be lethal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you guys face that threat. Your people face that daily for yeah. years. You know, we're in the military, it's extremely intense for an extremely short period of time, and it actually is done by an extremely small number of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, again, hats off to our law enforcement that, that that face that threat continually for their entire career. Yeah. It's a huge, it's a huge threat. Well, especially when you're out in patrol, you never know what one call to the next is going to get you. You never know what the traffic stop's going to get you. And you're walking up to a lot of, uh, what I... I mean, you'd consider them fortified positions or at least a, a strong position for the uh, opposite person you're, you know, you're dealing with. Sure. Because you never, you can't see a lot of things and you don't know what their intentions are. So uh, I think that gets lost on the public. That At least that doesn't get communicated, I should say. Uh, it's not lost on them. It's just, it's not communicated to the public just how crazy some of the stuff is Absolutely. that we see out there. So um, yeah, so you're kind of progressing through your career and you do a couple of deployments. Uh, yeah, um, the airborne had already always been held had always been held as a strategic reserve. Uh, so a lot of the times that um, other units would go off to different missions, mm-hmm. uh, Bosnia, Croatia, anywhere in the former Yugoslavia, uh, the airborne was never on those rotations because it was held back uh, for specific purposes uh, as a reserve. So eventually. Uh, this was kind of noted, and also there's some other dynamics going on within the military. Uh, when I uh, 
when I joined, um, there were 80, and my numbers will be off, but roughly, there were somewhere between 89,000 and 98,000 people uh, in the Canadian Forces, Army, Navy, and, and, and uh, Air Force. When I left, there were 48,000. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's like walking into a school, uh, a hospital, a police service, firing half your people, and then upping the workload. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the 90s, when uh, Canadian Forces was heavily involved in the, the former Yugoslavia, it was the same people over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. The first battalion of whatever regiment would come back from their six-month deployment, and uh, then a third of them, one of the companies would be attached to another unit that would deploy six months later. Mm-hmm. And then that unit would come back and send some of its people to another unit. It was, it was robbing Peter to pay Paul, and the, the operational tempo for, for individuals was, was unacceptably high. Uh, so the Airborne was eventually tapped, like, hey, you could, we need to send you guys somewhere. I mean, we're, we're keen for anything. Yeah. You know, we're, yeah. We're, at this point, we're like stomping our feet, ready to go anywhere. And we were tagged for a uh, mission called Minerso, which was in Western Sahara. Think of the top left-hand corner of Africa right below Spain. Mm-hmm. And it's an area that's been in dispute for decades and decades. And we were supposed to go there as blue berets and, and uh, separate these two warring sides and allow elections to happen and typical peacekeeping stuff. And while it wasn't our forte, we were, we were certainly up to go anywhere. Uh, and then that mission got canceled by the UN. So uh, Somalia popped up. And Somalia originally was a typical chapter uh, for, I think it is, a peacekeeping mission. Limited rules of engagement, limited arms, uh, limited scope of what you could do, uh, limited rules of engagement. You're essentially just there to keep the peace? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the problem was there was absolutely zero peace to keep. Yeah. Uh, and peacekeeping was not working in Somalia in the face of, of genocidal levels of, of starvation. Mm. And it was partly environmental, but it was also partially by design as a as a weapon of war between the various sides in a civil, very complex civil war. So as we were preparing to do this, uh, to go over, the U.S. stepped in and made it a, uh, a multilateral, multinational mission. And it changed from, it was still U.N. sanctioned, but it was on the same legal footing as the Korean War, uh, rather than peacekeeping. So we turned in all our blue helmets uh, turned in all our blue braids and our flags, uh, put our army gear back on, uh, and deployed over to Somalia at the behest of the Americans and uh, at their direction. Mm. Uh, so in would be end of '92, right around Christmas time, uh, we deployed into an area right up on the the Somali Ethiopian border which is a misnomer because the, the local people don't recognize the border. It's a, an arbitrary line drawn on the map by, mm-hmm. by people in another country. Uh, they see themselves as, as clans and cultural groups and not as, not as, as a unified nation like we would, we would structure ourselves. So we uh, initially air-landed, uh, forced our way into uh, an airport in, in Belatwain, Somalia, and then later brought in uh, many more troops from uh, by highway, uh, uh, along with armored vehicles, and just showing up in the aggressive posture that we took. I mean, initially we were in the airfield, literally living in trenches, living out of rucksacks, minimal water, um, minimal food, lots of ammunition. Mm. 
And just the aggressive posture we took by patrolling day and night, um, the local warlords thought it was a good idea to not do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And they, they pretty much folded up right away. So sometimes the like aggression overwhelm will does actually work and, shock and awe. clears people out. Yes, yeah. exactly. Shock and awe. Yeah. 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 Officer presence, I guess mm-hmm. you'd call it. Yeah. Uh, just showing up and doing what we did as aggressively as we did. Um, and there were, there were certainly some light contacts or definite firefights in the beginning. Uh, there were firefights and a lot more went on there than, than, uh, than was recognized. Uh, somehow I think the, the frame of reference for the Canadian public was, was peacekeeping, hugging babies and waving flags and, yeah. and blue beret stuff. And that's definitely not what we saw our, ourselves involved in. That's not, that wasn't the reality on the ground. And did that, from where you were uh, on the ground, did that change mostly because the peacekeeping idea, I guess, wasn't really getting anywhere with the type of people you're dealing with? Or was there more to it? Like you said, the U.S. came in and that kind of changed things. Yeah, it, 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 it was no longer a peacekeeping. It was a peacemaking operation, for, for mm. lack of a better uh, term. Um it was a peace enforcement. Basically, we came in and, and became the local military mm-hmm. and uh, prevented others from operating in the area in a multiple different ways, simply by, by occupying the area and denying uh, use of that area uh, by direct action at times, uh, yeah. going after a couple bad guys directly um, uh, and controlling the routes of access in and out. I said this before on one of the previous shows, but the idea of uh, police uh, in some capacity as the closed fist of the public, where a lot of the self-preservation, self-defense has been taken away from the general person out there. And a lot of them don't know how to do that anymore. Uh, And that would go for maybe the people of Somalia or wherever else you were deployed to. And the military becomes that where they come in and you have warlords or you have here in Canada, say organized crime and they're controlling people, they're extorting people, they're influencing. And, you know, somebody has to, at some point come in and deal with them. Mm -hmm. So sometimes violence has to be used. Absolutely. And sometimes there's time for diplomacy, but um, yeah, I, I can see how the military would kind of fit that role for people uh, outside of Canada. So, Yeah, absolutely. In, in, in the absence of, of, of lawful government, uh, that's what we were there to do is, is, to, uh, is to enforce uh, the rule of law mm-hmm. uh, as best able. And you mentioned with the, with the police is that the, uh, the right and the means of self-defense uh, and the responsibility of, of self-preservation has been removed in our culture and society. Uh, and it's, I don't think it's well recognized that, that the police, it's not their role to protect any individual. Yeah. It's, it's to protect the state and, and uh, deter and enforce the law, uphold the rule of law. But their ability to, somehow we expect them to be personal bodyguards. Yes, and exactly. It's just not a reality. We face the same thing in Somalia as we had individuals who were like, hey, come and solve this problem with my neighbor. We're like, uh, we'll send somebody if we can, but uh, that's, that's not really what we do. That's not really a, our matter. 
Yeah. Oh. Yeah, we're not personal protection. And we've actually had this come up in the last couple of weeks with a, a few different people where they're like, Sorry. You know, uh, you know, what are you doing to protect me? Nothing. Nothing. I like I have my shift and then I'm off and there's only X amount of police officers for what one point one million people in the greater Edmonton area. Uh you, just sheer numbers wise, I can't be your personal protection, but exactly for a lot of other reasons. So, you know, end of the day, uh, good luck. Uh, <laughs> and you kind of got yourself into some of this stuff. So yeah, yeah. The uh, what's when when you switch over to back to the military gear, and then you're um, taking on these warlords and stuff. What are the guys on the ground saying? What are they thinking? Is this kind of you know, is everybody in agreement with this or is there just a wide range of opinions? There, there's a wide range of opinion. And uh, a lot of my work personally, individually, uh, it's kind of like a stakeout. It was surveillance, mm. uh, covert surveillance. Uh, and I got to see people as they actually were because they didn't know they were being watched. I mean, when the, when the armored vehicle goes by, everybody puts on, when the cop car goes by, everybody puts on their base, best face and smiles yeah. and waves and then goes back to what they are. So, but I got to see them as they truly were. And, and the one constant I notice is that most people are just trying to get through their day. They're mm -hmm. trying to feed their children. They're trying to do what they got to do to take care of the mechanics of living. And certainly in this austere, incredibly austere environment. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, this literally nothing. These people were just trying to survive to the next day by and large. And they didn't really care who was in charge as long as they could farm what crops they could manage or carry out what commerce they were engaged in. But it's always that 2%, that 5% of people that uh, are looking to exploit yeah. the social gaps and, and, and for their own power. Yeah, for the majority, it's not their fight. No, they so. just want to get through their day and live their lives yeah. as best they're able. Uh, so yeah, there was certainly that 2 to 5% of society that, that had skin in the game and were disadvantaged. By uh, by our presence, so they were they were not very happy we were there, but by virtue of our 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 strength and our aggressiveness, they they didn't really have a lot of options. Also, on the other side, um, most of our work really was more characterized as, as uh, country building too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, once we suppressed the bad guys, and time to time had to deter or, or directly. Uh, um, attack uh, individuals or areas or, or go and seize a bunch of weapons from somebody. Um, once we'd done that, we naturally turned to creating a local police force. We trained, raised, equipped, uh, and patrolled with uh, locally selected and trained police officers mm -hmm. and were just simply a force enabler so they could do what they needed to do. That's, uh, that's what you hear a lot about in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. In the Middle East. The later part, right? yeah. Yeah. So it turns into kind of a nation building. Yep, 100%. And I guess the main goal, you kind of want to at some point not be there anymore. It costs a lot of money for a country to send everybody there. Um, you're hoping to turn it back over to the people, let them govern themselves and run themselves. That's the ideal, you bet. Yeah. So. Yeah. We, we weren't there for six months. We were there for an indeterminate amount of time. We had no idea how long we were there for. So we, we were engaged in allowing the humanitarian efforts to proceed. Uh, Medicine Sans Frontières, Red Cross, Red Cross, and all these, um, all these, these NGOs, non-governmental organizations uh, had been engaged and 
I tell you what, like it's something to be like a bunch of 20 something studs with machine guns and rocket launchers and go into these places, <laughs> man, there were aid workers there. Uh, there was one woman who had been engaged in this type of stuff and she'd been in Somalia for two or three years, wow. uh, an American. Um, and like they're there 24, seven, 365. Uh, and she spent her entire adult life doing this stuff. Wow. You know, and they're there. Uh, their only protection is the locally hired guards. And when you hire your guards, somebody only has to offer them more money and they're no longer your guards. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very unbelievably brave thing that they do constantly. Yeah. You know, it's certainly, it was one of those moments, aha moments for me when I realized like, okay, we're not the hardest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some some pretty mentally tough people out here doing some pretty remarkable stuff. Yeah. yeah. And back then, speaking of the... Uh, mental toughness side of things did the army ever do they offer any programs back in the 90s uh for mental health absolutely not nothing <laughs> yeah. yeah so I kind of figured yeah no and, and and again we were lucky in somalia again more like by luck than design uh if there was a bad guy we just like went after them mm-hmm. more likely there'd be a fist fight i mean more than once i as a sniper i'd set up uh uh, to cover the movement of, of my, I was in Pathfinder platoon at the time. Uh, Pathfinder platoon would go to do like a raid on a house and we'd meet like one commander had already done that house and they were coming out. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. There was almost like a fist fight to go after the bad guys. You so, know? So it was, yeah. um, sorry, go ahead. No. Um, well, I was gonna, I was thought this might come later, but since you mentioned it already, uh, the, at what point were you a sniper? So you're already a sniper now. You did that at the beginning of the commandos, or is this something later? Yeah, when I was uh, when I was in uh, two commando in 1989, uh, they offered a sniper course, and I talked my way onto it, mm. and uh, and was was lucky enough to pass it. Uh, incredibly difficult. Uh, it's, it's one of the most difficult courses that that I'd certainly I've ever done, and it's, it's certainly one of the the highest attrition rates, certainly in the infantry. Um, Twice on the, I think it was a 14-week course, twice I actually packed all my gear in the morning because I thought I was not going to be there in the afternoon. Wow. Like I legitimately did not expect to to persevere and to to pass, uh, but I did. Hmm. Um, So in 1989, I qualified as as a basic sniper, and that was one of those moments you talked about mortality. I came off that course scared. Because I realized, yeah, I've learned this, but I had a stunning glimpse into how little I knew mm-hmm. that that the people that I would be going against directly have been doing this longer than I've been in the army. And you're talking me, like wherever you're deploying. Yeah, I can yeah. deploy somewhere and be faced with somebody who's been doing this way more, and then the uh, uh, the specter of my own vulnerability mm-hmm. certainly became very, very painfully clear to me. Well, can you talk a bit about the training? So what what does it take to become a, a sniper? So it's like anything else, like law enforcement, uh, medicine, education, anything. Sniping has certainly evolved. But at the time, uh, we, were, uh, we were cold warriors and we were training to face the red hordes. So... Most of our work was was certainly uh, rural. There was a lot of stalking uh, creeping through the woods. So the way they mm-hmm. run it is uh, there's two instructors sitting on chairs uh, with binoculars at a certain point, and you're told where that point is, and you're given a, 
a lane a few hundred meters wide and a couple kilometers long, and you have to approach them within a certain time from a certain direction, and you must end up within a, uh, a geographical box uh, a couple hundred meters wide and about 150 meters deep. So it's, it's the size of, say, three football fields of rough brush and low ground and places mm. to hide. So you sneak in all camouflaged up, just like you see in the movies, mm-hmm. uh, and you find them, uh, and you identify them, and uh, you literally you declare, you shout out, uh, sniper ready to fire. And the whole time that you've been moving, there's other instructors with orange vests that are kind of like re- remote-controlled drones controlled by radio <laughs> by the instructors on the chair. And if the instructors see you, uh, the, uh, the, the walkers, they're called, these guys in orange vests, would walk over and touch you, and you failed. If oh. the instructors could cause the drones, the, the walkers, to touch you, you failed. And just done all right, you're, you're gone. You're, you're done off that stock. I think we had mm. to pass nine of the 11. Wow. Um, so you crawled into position. Uh, you found them with blank ammunition, uh, uh, just as a powder charge. There's no projectile. Um, you declare you're ready to fire your shot. Um, the instructors look for you. They tell the walker to move within five meters. Uh, if they still don't see you, they tell the walker to move within one meter. Uh, if they still don't see you, they get the walker at the time. They said, indicate direction, and they would point in your general direction. Um, and if they still didn't see you, the walker would move away, and you'd while they're staring at you, you would fire your one blank shot. And then to prove that you could actually see what you were shooting at, they would hold up a card with a letter on it. Okay. And you had to identify the letter. And at that point, you then had to stalk out without being seen. Uh, and that was considered a pass. Oh, you still had to go back out. Well, you still got to get out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everybody's got to wow. go home. So uh, that's, that's one of the five key skills. Um, <laughs> there, there's other ones, uh, whether it's being able to judge the distance, which is important. Uh, or just observation. I mean, you as a uh, police officer, you know that like the conditions you're in or the situation is, is your perception is based on what you can see. Mm-hmm. And the information that I as a sniper could pass back to the commanders was probably more important than me picking off one or two guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, information management, uh, observation skills uh, were another key skill. And uh, I was just involved with the, the basic sniper course that's just still running uh, currently, and they did lose a couple guys on observation. Uh, you're given a certain task in a certain area and certain objects to, to note or find or describe, and uh, not everybody's able to do that. Yeah, I would uh, maybe equate the observations that you're talking about to our current role. So I work with the gang suppression team. We do a lot of walks through venues where there's hundreds, if not, you know, you get a thousand people, a couple thousand at uh, some of these raves or the big concerts. And we're not so focused on uh, arresting and charging somebody with a criminal charge, uh, but the mass amount of intel that we gather. We are constantly having to be switched on. You're looking at everybody, uh, not only to keep yourself alive and other people around you alive, because a lot of the guys we deal with carry guns. Absolutely. But it's who's talking to who, who's going where, who's shaking hands, you know, uh, what are they driving? So there, there's all the things that we pay attention to and you never know what little piece of information finally connects the dots in the bigger picture right? Uh, and, and what's going to be used down the road. So um, this very important aspect is kind of being alive to your complete environment 
everything that's going on in it at all times. Uh, you get real brain drained by the end of shift, but um, no, it's it's a different world and it's not meant for everybody. So no, no. So yeah. so when you're, we call it selectivity, ignoring what's not important and, and paying attention to what is important. How do you do that? Is it intuitive? Is it a checklist? Um, what's your process? Oh, for us, uh, and I'll thank you for being, I think you're the first person to ask me a question on here. That's <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, our process. I think a lot of it is you're just, partially you're genuinely interested in finding these things out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're just looking for the opportunities you're constantly on the hunt and you always want to know what's going on and you know, who's in the game and what they're doing. It's, um, how would I, I don't know if it's necessarily a process or like a, a checklist. It's just something you do and mm-hmm. you either kind of have those skills built in or you mm-hmm. don't. Um, you have to be a very high drive person a lot of our stuff is very proactive, not reactive. So we're in people's faces and trying to get information. You got to talk to people. You have to have people skills. It's a big one. Um, you have to be able to talk to people cold. So you just by yourself wow. go up to a group of whoever, you know, uh, you go up and you just start talking and while you're talking, you might be prodding for information or just in general conversation, things come up. People like talking about themselves for the most part. So once you get going, uh, people are more willing to kind of throw information out there hmm. than they might realize. So I think that it's a whole totality of a lot of different skills uh, and your character and how you come across to people when you talk to them. So you can either get that info from them or not. So, yeah. It does sound very, very intuitive. Mm-hmm. It's uh, in the military, they call it human. And now we've got, we've got cadre of people who do that. You know, that's their whole existence. Like but, the informant type yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yes. We, we call it human intelligence or human. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it sounds incredibly intuitive and, and kind of holistic. It's <laughs> yeah. not a, you know, I, I live my life by checklist. Mm-hmm. I always say, uh, but uh, um, yeah, that that innate ability to decide what is important and to listen and remember those one or two facts that are important. That's that's a. It's not so much a skill. I'm sure it can be developed. It's a quality and a characteristic more mm-hmm. than it is a, a process skill. Well, and I think just from my own personal experience, it'd be growing up, kind of the environment you're in. Uh, you know, if you're if you're in a real sterile environment and your parents protect you from everything and you're not exposed to any <laughs> danger ever, yep. uh, yeah, you're not going to be, you're not really looking for anything. Yeah, you're, you're oblivious. Just floating through white. life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but um, where I grew up and some of the experiences I've had, uh, I've really kind of, ha- I've had to stay on my toes in a lot of different situations. And even to this day, I can think back to a lot of things throughout Free uh, from junior high, high mm-hmm. school. Uh, there's situations where you kind of are standing back and you're looking at something unfolding in front of you, uh, uh, and 
you're just analyzing like, well, what's that person doing? And what's that person doing? And then, you know, why is that guy going over there? And you're just constantly nitpicking at the little things in front of you. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's something that maybe you can learn to an extent. I would imagine at some point in life, you might get to a, a, a there's a point where, you know, you can't teach the old dog new tricks. So yeah, I, I'm not the psychologist, but uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I still we, think we, about that today. The term that comes to mind is, is a developed habit or inclination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mental management stuff, uh, we, it's one of the phrases that we use to define it. And it becomes part of who you are. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a daily habit. Yeah. Yeah, and that is a thing too, right? You got to kind of exercise that skill. If you don't use it, you lose it. It's like a lot of things on our jobs. So yeah, but yeah, right. it becomes no. part of who you are. We always we always joke about. It. I mean, if you go to go to a coffee shop or a bar with a bunch of cops or soldiers, it's like fifteen people trying to sit in the corner of the room. Mm-hmm. So where they got a dominating view and yeah, yeah. notice of all the exits. Everybody's <laughs> trying to sit in the same chair. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a developed inclination or habit. It's very interesting. Well, even in our position uh, with the people that we deal with, oh, yeah. and we go to a lot of the same places they do. We eat at a lot of the same restaurants, might shop at the same places. And wow. so you're, even when you're off duty, you're still switched on and you're still looking around. I don't know how many times I've come into work and uh, I've had to do follow-up on something I've seen on days off. Oh, I yeah. might write a report on something I've seen on days off. Uh, you know, like all the time, all the time. And yeah. it's nonstop. And then even to a degree, some of the, the people you deal with, you know, uh, if you got family outside the job, you don't necessarily want, you, you don't want your family coming across these people. So, or you try to keep it as private as possible. End of the day, there's, you know, people are going to see you and you might not even know, but yep. uh, yeah, you got to be kind of a, just aware. It's, it's not about being paranoid, but about being vigilant and making sure that, you know, you're just being as safe as possible. So all those things come up, but it is, it's a, a switch that's hard to turn off. Nor should you. Yeah. 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 Well, again, talking about, you know, self-defense, self-reservation, and it's not about being paranoid, uh, not telling everybody, you're not fear mongering with everybody, but, uh, a lot of the public doesn't realize just what's around them and the amount of things that I know our team has found in the most upscale of restaurants and places. And, uh, and you find some pretty interesting weapons and other things on. Dude, I, like, I, I live in St. Albert and uh, without trying, I'm picking it up more and more over the last year. Mm-hmm. I'm picking up characters that I'm like, why am I noticing that dude? I'm like, oh, that's why. Yeah. He's got a little man purse wrapped around his chest in his sweatsuit. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. That ain't right. Yeah. And that's, that's like I say, it's become more prevalent in the last 18 months, two years. So more. Um, we're going to get to a lot of the mental management. Um, or talk, just finish off kind of with the career. Sure. You're talking about with the military, because this is a big aspect of what we're going to get to. Um, so you're talking about being in Somalia and where else do you kind of go from there? And what else do you take um, on? Uh, Somalia, I was with the Pathfinder platoon. Um, uh, our job, normally it's, it's a division between reconnaissance and also our job primarily was to access the regiment in and out. We were responsible for setting up landing zones, drop zones, 
we would go in by usually by free fall or some other means. Uh, I mean, it got even got to come off a sub once. That was kind of cool. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It was awesome. A um, Canadian one? Yeah, yeah. That was kind of scary. Like, no joke. <laughs> it, it literally had uh, uh, masking tape around some of the dials to control the amount of humidity and 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 like moisture that would get in. I just in picture there. a guy. It was sad. Riding, it was, you know, was pedaling the bike pedals to terrifying yeah you're not far off at the time we had the the uh, old class subs and they were just brutal wow. like hats off to the guys who are in there but um in Somalia, we were almost uh equally split between reconnaissance and uh we were kind of like a pocket platoon for the commander to do direct action stuff um not very much but like there was <laughs> there were some moments mm-hmm. um it was coming back it was just kind of cargo in a in a <clears throat> excuse me in a humvee Rolled over, I, I was kind of half asleep coming back from something, and all of a sudden the vehicles accelerate, and uh, I, you know, I come fully awake and, and try to see what's going on, and uh, we were rushed. Uh, there was a broken down truck in the middle of the road with a massive anti-aircraft gun. Uh, they were desperately trying to swing it to point it at us, but oh, wow. through speed and violence, uh, we over, overwhelmed them right away. Mm-hmm. And uh, had we not, if we'd stayed back or, or been timid about it, absolutely they would have been pumping 23 millimeter shells into our unarmored vehicles yeah so uh you know speed and aggression has its place as you know especially with people you deal with yeah i couldn't imagine just waking up and Ah! you have yeah less than a second to be on and on top of things yeah you know we we did it i mean you know exactly what it's like i'm sure is again we we escorted an ambassador up to uh another part of the country that was desperately trying to stay out of the civil war. Uh, there was a different warlord group, uh, ethnic group that was trying to maintain some sort of border to keep the troubles away. But we brought a, a U.S. diplomat up there. We drove up there with them for, uh, took us about four or five days to get there. And to cross one of the, one of the battle lines, again, I'm in the back of the vehicle doing something and I look up and I notice that the guy in the turret now has two rocket launchers in his hand and is, trying to point them at something. So again, I pop up like a, uh, like a gopher and, and realize that we're, we're about to get into a hard contact. Wow. But again, speed and aggression prevented any, any problems from them. Have you ever uh, been able to talk to any of the warlords or any of the higher up guys? Like, do you- not, not personally directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was with the commander um, uh, when, he, when he spoke with and dealt with a couple times. My job was, was not so much to listen to what they were doing, but we were basically doing close protection for them. Okay. Um, uh, the chief of defense staff came over uh, for a uh, tour and, and looked around. We did close protection for him. And I got to hear him talk to uh, the guy, General, General uh, air quotations, General Hubero, who was the local warlord before we got there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, by chance, I did actually recruit one of our uh, local guy um, who, uh, and we'll give his name because I think he's still alive. Uh, he worked as a uh, interpreter and uh, then later as an informant, like you'd call it a confidential informant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with not much else to do at the time, I actually learned the language. So being able to walk around as, as a Canadian soldier uh, with the local people, not knowing that I understood a little bit of the language uh, was certainly an advantage at the time. And like you're talking about walking around in a crowd, there were several things I picked up, mm-hmm. even with my very, very rudimentary language Yeah, uh, that, that were of value. Well, I, I, could, I mean, tons of the people we deal with, they 
speak a variety of languages and, and the dialects within there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can only imagine what they're saying about us a lot yeah. of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need the universal translator to get invented. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, I uh, did Somalia and I was really lucky slash unlucky. I was really lucky. Uh, most of the regiment deployed back to Canada in end of May, 93. Um, uh, I got, I stayed back for almost a month. I got back June 26 in, I stayed for almost a month in Mogadishu and it was busy up in the desert, but it was literally the wild west in Mogadishu. This really? is, uh, May. So we're what, maybe five months before the, uh, the battle of the black sea market, um, which is the, the black Hawk down deal. Um, and it was in the buildup to that. They declared, uh, uh, AD, the, the kind of federal level warlord, they declared him a target. So that was certainly going on and things were getting more intense. Uh, we weren't peacekeepers. The, uh, there were some Pakistani soldiers who unfortunately were there as peacekeepers and they were fortifying a main uh, intersection and under the rules of engagement they had, they had very limited ammunition and they got wiped out to a man. What? Like 35 guys. They had like four magazines each. So the, uh, IDs guys, bad guys, uh, just shot at them until the Pakistani, these poor dudes were out of ammo. And then they just went in and cut them to pieces. Wow. Um, killed them all. Uh, when helicopters would fly over the city, uh, we didn't know it at the time, but it was, it was actually Al Qaeda, uh, training these dudes. Really way back then. Way back then, yeah. it was it was actually Bin Laden's people that he dispatched into Mogadishu and trained them how to use RPGs to shoot down helicopters. We'd see helicopters fly in, and there'd be like these rings of RPGs arc up out of the city at closer uh-huh. and closer, like concentric circles coming closer. And that was a coordinated effort that was taught to them by by uh, Bin Laden's people. Wow. So it was, it was certainly the Wild West. You know, I never understand, and I mean, we see this, even within our job to an extent, but it's, uh, you know, they never prepare for the worst. They'd rather just be reactive after kind of shit's hit the fan. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so even though you're there to peacekeep, maybe give them more than four mags. Yeah. Like this just doesn't seem to make right. sense to me. Yeah. Because you know? especially the environment over there. Yeah. Uh, any, at any second, they could get overwhelmed. And they did. Yeah. Yeah. That just seems nuts. Yeah. They got wiped out. Um, so it certainly focused our intent, uh, at the time, uh, the, we were defending the port. It was our purpose as some Canadian ships got loaded. So we were there for about a, about a month and, uh, we got hit and probed a few times and, and had some dedicated attacks, uh, watched an RPG, the world's worst RPG gunner. Uh, he ran out, uh, in front of the main gate, launched his grenade and he was trying to hit the machine gun bunker right in behind my sniper position on top of the building. And this grenade art went, went across a parking lot full of armored vehicles, probably went six or eight feet over top of the machine gun bunker, across uh, through another parking lot. And there were two massive cargo ships in the, in the uh, harbor. And it went perfectly in between the bow and stern, exploded harmlessly in the water. Like, if that guy didn't get fired that day, he should have been, because he was the world's worst RPG gunner. The definition of you can't hit the broadside of a barn. <laughs> From the inside, yeah. You can't hit the broadside of a ship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, or a whole building. Yeah, but we get the same thing now with uh, some of the shootings that happen. These guys, they come out and the gun, you know, they got it sideways and they're shooting rounds off and as they should, absolutely. Twenty rounds go and it's like uh, 
what was it the old Dick Tracy movie maybe where the guy's got the Tommy gun and shoots like the yeah the, the holes all yeah. around the figure and <laughs> like a stormtrooper yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and that's that's the proper manly way to fire a handgun, guys. If they're listening, then absolutely keep doing that because yeah. God bless you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I came back from Somalia and uh, continued training with the Airborne. Uh, it was kind of a bass backwards uh, training process. Usually, you went through selection, then you went to Pathfinder Platoon. Mm. But we went there, and we were about to do the selection uh, when Somalia cropped up, and uh, so we didn't actually do the selection and, and do all the free fall training and all the advanced training until after we got back from Somalia. So I was really lucky because now I'm doing this, this selection course that normally has about a 90% attrition, but I'm doing it with a bunch of dudes who I know and truly love and mm. trust absolutely. And they're all highly skilled and experienced. I mean, they just came off a, a six-month deployment doing the job. So, uh, well, we didn't walk through the course. It certainly was an advantage. We had a very high graduation rate that particular cycle, mm -hmm. uh, where typically we'd start with 42 experienced guys out of the commandos and we'd graduate like nine. Um, that's this one. We, I think we lost one guy from the platoon to an injury. Oh. Uh, so it was pretty awesome to, to finish that. And uh, you, you do, you can come off of that feeling you can accomplish anything. Yeah. Um, and. At the time, I I, uh, I just started the mental management stuff. Now, when I when I joined the army, I thought, oh man, they're going to teach us to be tough. They're going to teach us to be mentally tough, got to be strong. Cool. So it goes through basic training, and they're like, oh, you must be mentally strong to be in the forces. Cool. How do we do that, boss? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go through infantry training. Yeah, oh, what does that look like? Yeah. What's yeah? Exactly. <laughs> what What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. uh, same thing in, in in what we call battle school, learning to be an infantryman. Uh, it's like, oh, Patricia's are mentally strong. We're tough. You got to be tough for the job. <laughs> cool. Mm -hmm. And and it was the same thing, basic reconnaissance course, uh, jump course. Oh, you got to be tough to be a paratrooper. Neat. And same story over and over again. After I passed sniper course, and again, there was this mental toughness aspect, but nobody actually, I mean, there was examples. Uh, you, you could, and that's a great teacher. You could watch people. You know, like when I was the new guy in two commando, there were guys, uh, who I definitely emulated, mm -hmm. you know, it just but by osmosis, but that's not the ideal way to, to really learn those kind of things. But then I went after sniper course, I got to go on a rifle team. Now a rifle team is a competitive team formed by your unit within the army and you train for several months and then you go to the national level competition and you shoot against all the other army, Navy and air force teams, mm. uh, in a, uh, in a square range where the targets are at one end and all year at like, five or four or three or two or 100 meters and you shoot a set course of fire with with uh, certain size targets and it's, it's a competition there's prizes and trophies and blah 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 and that whole competitive uh it's it's like um isac that you guys do the inner service small arms mm -hmm. competition um the the purpose of it, it it's a fun sport but the purpose is to to increase the the fundamentals to increase the knowledge of marksmanship yeah. within a core that can later be redistributed out to the, the rest of the units to improve marksmanship. And it's very, very valuable. It's, it's not an end to itself, but it's, it's an enabler for, for further training. Well, at the time there was a, uh, uh, captain, uh, Keith Cunningham and Keith and his wife, Linda now run Milcon training out of, uh, out of Ontario. And Keith and Linda are the gurus for this system of mental management. Uh, it was started originally by a guy named Lanny Basham, who was an uh, uh, international-level American shooter in the 70s. 
and he lost his gold medal at the Olympics to a guy he'd been beating in World Cups and mm. in training, a guy he had, he had faced many times and defeated many times. But he, when he went to the Olympics, he mentally choked. Okay. To hear him tell the story, he says he lost his gold medal in the first four rounds of his shoot. Mm. He had been on the bus going to the opening ceremonies and somebody said, hey, man, do you know this is the first televised Olympics and six million people are going to be watching us? And he went, ah. Yeah. And that was the end of his, his Olympic gold medal. So he spent the next four years realizing that his mental program wasn't strong. His technical and shooting program was strong, but he realized that, that the technical, physical side of shooting is about 10% of performance. Mm-hmm. We see that a lot in martial arts. It's the same it, thing. It's, yeah, uh, the overwhelming majority of what you're doing in that ring. I think there's, you're, at some point, your muscles and everything are going to be tired. They're going to break down, especially if you're taking hits. But if you can push through it, you have to have that mindset that you've Bingo. been through worse. You know, it's hurt worse before, and yeah. you just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Stacy Lim, uh, the uh, LAPD officer, survived a, a very close range shooting. She says, you got to prepare your mind to take your body where it may have to go. Yes. And it, it, it truly is 90% mental. It's, uh, there was uh, a doctor, uh, Nicholas Carlton, we had him on here. Well, his podcast hasn't come out yet, but uh, he was guest on here just a couple of weeks ago. And he talked about the uh, PTSD side of things mm-hmm. and some of the programs offered by employers, uh, whether it's police services or just private companies. Some of the programs, though, they're not evidence-based. So he's like, how do you know what they're, they're telling you? Uh, it actually works. So I think a lot of that kind of translates into a lot of these kind of programs. Like, how do you sure. know that works? You know, is it backed up by uh, accolades and the evidence? You know, who who else is shooting for them or fighting for them? And what does that look like? So, yeah, it's interesting because there is a lot of programs out there to teach you how to shoot sure. or do mental uh, management or work on PTSD, whatever it might be. And... So I, a lot of what you see, I think, is just programs they're selling you. So sure, yeah, sure. There's, I think everybody's uh, operating with the best of intentions. Yeah, um, and they're they're, including myself. I'm bringing forward what I know works based on my own situation, my own experiences, anecdotal. Uh, but the reason that I that I know this works, and and nothing in mental management is unique. It is simply habits and attitudes. It's a developed inclination. Um, it's a developed response mm-hmm. to a, a, a premeditated situation, but mostly a habit and attitude. Um, and it works because Lanny Basham went around after he lost his gold medal to a guy he'd been beating. And he noticed that 90% of the gold medals are won by the same 5% athletes. Lots of people go to the Olympics, but not many people win. Think of Michael Phelps as like 13 gold medals, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're wider than his friggin' shoulders, right? Yeah. So he talked to those kind of people and he talked to them about how they train, but he talked to them about what did you think about? What do you blah, blah, blah. You know, what do you think about before? What do you think about training? How do you structure this? What's your thought process? Uh, do you, you know, do you visualize blah, blah. And he, he gathered the habits and attitudes of the very successful people. So it's proven across a wide range of sports. And he asked him a simple question. He says, how much is your, of your performance is mental? How much is physical? And the lowest he got was from the Olympic basketball players, and it was 85% mental. 
the highest was 95% mental. And it's kind of cool. It was from the, the deadlifters, the gross motor skill of lifting a heavy thing up. Mm-hmm. And these people were saying, male and female, it was 95% mental at least. For the one rep max. For the one just, rep max yeah, weight. And it's yeah. all mental. And we found the same thing with selection. When later I ran selection for the, the Pathfinder platoon, and, and I'd been an assistant on three of them, been a student on one, and I think we ran one or two after. Everybody's the same from the neck down. These are all fit, hard, trained, developed experienced people mm-hmm. they're all the same from the neck down it's 100 percent mental mm-hmm. uh in any kind of performance i mean this mental management stuff is taught to ceos uh it's taught to uh all the major in one form or another it's taught to uh nba nhl cfl all the major sports teams 23 of the last 25 miss america winners have been mental management graduates oh really yeah so it doesn't matter what our performance is and that's why I talk about you introduced me as a lifelong student of the rifle because the things that we can learn in our performance, in my case or many people's case, the rifle, the rifle has lots of good lessons. It's those skills that can improve our life off the range. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, straight up, I tell people that I would not be married and I would probably not be alive if it wasn't for mental management. Yeah, The skills, habits, and attitudes I learned on the, uh, on the range from Keith Cunningham, um, uh, from Steve Birch, from several other people, uh, I applied to the rest of my life. And that's, that's what I attribute hundred percent of my successes to. Um, I even, some of the successes come in the form of failure and that's mm-hmm. another opportunity to, to find out what works and that's fine. I'm, I'm comfortable with failing. Uh, but everything that's gone right in my life has been hundred percent attributable to the habits and attitudes I developed on the range through mental management. Well, I talked with, uh, Steve Amblin yep. from Chaz. Uh, he, we were talking about the, Maple Sea program mm-hmm. for the kids. Yep. And something we kind of got onto was about just one is having your kids do something that is out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, not saying that like, you know, if your kids go play basketball or whatever and or whatever's available at the local rec center, like that's not not important. But um, if you give them an opportunity to do something that's really unique, uh, I think that's very important and then when you get out there and you're doing something like shooting a rifle uh there is a lot of focus and the skill that's mm-hmm. required to do it because it's actually not easy unlike what the movies make it look yeah, like. yeah absolutely <laughs> um there's and it can almost get as complicated as you want it to get it sure. can get simple if you're just out there having fun throwing rounds down yeah. the range but um there's a lot to it and you got to learn a lot of things and you have to have the patience and skill, which you develop. Um, it's a real character builder. And Absolutely. I think the big thing, especially for kids, would be like the responsibility. Bingo. So, yeah. Bingo. Well, yeah. We, I absolutely agree. And I listened to that podcast and man, you guys are nailing this. Because I believe that, that small arms, particularly the rifle, uh, is a great interim responsibility. Because we ask them to have a sudden influx of responsibility later in their life. Like, you know, my, my dad and his brothers, they were responsible at like age 10 and 12 for their vegetable garden. Mm. And it wasn't a hobby. Yeah. If they screwed it up or if they didn't meet their responsibilities, You're they eating. went hungry. Yeah. You know, and I had certain responsibilities on the farm as a kid, not near as much as my, my, my parents did. Uh, now, 
for whatever reasons, many kids in society have little to no responsibility mm-hmm. uh, until 14 in Alberta. And then on their own at 16, we asked them to take a, thousands of pounds of vehicle and hur- hurtle down the highway at the you know, combined heading speed of, of 240 kilometers an hour. Actually, uh, with a lot of the people we deal with, they're in go. their early 20s. Yeah. Don't even have a license. There you go. Like, what are you doing? Absolutely. Do you not want to go anywhere? Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know, blowing. I know, I know. Like, it I couldn't used wait to be to a rite it. of passage, yeah. but it's, it's yeah. not. And I think it's because, and again, the, you know, this, my only opinion is we don't set, we don't get our kids, or let me rephrase this. We need to put our kids in position to develop them through failure mm-hmm. and teach them, give them opportunities for responsibility because they go from little to none to driving a vehicle. Yeah. And Firearms is is a great way to have an intermediary step because it's physically and, and, and neurologically, it's the same requirements as playing musical instrument, which we start in about grades five or six. Mm-hmm. So they're capable of it. There is a great deal of responsibility because there are very real repercussions, uh, potential for harm if they do it wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's within their capabilities. It's right at the edge of their capabilities and under proper program, safely structured and administered, they can go out, usually suck at first, yeah. uh, struggle, fail again, build confidence and competence. They eventually succeed, and their confidence and their ability to handle responsibility is very real. And they walk away with a real pride. I, I've, yeah. been, I've been down in the States. Well, <laughs> uh, my partner and I, in 97, won the uh, first Canadian International Sniper Competition uh, uh, Tim Turner and I, and a week later, two weeks later, I went to a civilian shooting competition. I got my ass handed to me by a 14 year old girl <laughs> who was, how did, she was there. Like her parent was probably over somewhere else shooting as well, but she'd been squatted or, or delegated into this position. She was walking around with a rifle, 14 years old, with all the adults and few kids, uh, perfectly capable of, of discharging that responsibility because mm-hmm. she'd been properly prepared for it. Yeah. So it's it's it, firearms is a great intermediary step to prepare young people for later responsibilities. This I bring this up so much with uh, everyone that we deal with, and you know the a lot of the narratives now is blame police for everything. Mm-hmm. But I just say there's so many people who failed you and you failed yourself long before we came into the picture. Absolutely, if we're dealing with you. We're the we're at the very tail end in most respects. That's um, very true. You know your parents didn't raise you properly. Maybe the schools didn't help you out. Yeah. But you also made a lot of decisions along the way to continue down a certain path. Um, so, yeah, no, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, they've been set up for failure because they never had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And we found the same thing uh, uh, for about a year and a half. I instructed recruits, brand new people coming into the military. And these were uh, mostly men at the time because it was infantry. Um, these were a group of young people who literally had never faced very real demands from an older male mm-hmm. uh, with very real repercussions if they didn't meet them. Yeah. And many of them rose to the challenge and, and several were blown away by it and required extra instruction and support to get through it um, because they'd never had those demands placed on them. Yeah. You know, I, well, um, so some of the stuff I wanted to talk about too mm-hmm. was uh, the training that you do with police mm-hmm. and some of the stuff you do right now. So, because you still train some of the snipers for the military? 
Uh, well, I, you alluded to it. You said that you know there's a lot of courses that, that teach you how to shoot. Mm-hmm. The, the I just came back from a couple weeks ago from uh, where they're training them, uh, the basic course, and I was there in the first few days and saw them receive, and I, I helped with the marksmanship training as well. The quality of the training they're getting is is strong. Like it's far superior to what I went through. Uh, technically, the level of knowledge of the instructors is it's much broader and, and deeper. Uh, what I was there to do was to present the mental side of it. Okay. Because there is such a high attrition rate on this course, and it is so long, and it is, it, the course demands a lot of time uh, from the people who are running it, and there's actually about a two-to-one ratio of, of uh, support people to students. Oh, really? Yeah. And is this still a 14-week course? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. For example, I think it's 11 or 12 weeks now. Uh, because the nature of the job has changed a great deal. Mm -hmm. And also they're learning to shoot three different weapon systems. Okay. We learned one. Yeah. So they've got much more shooting and much less stocking, for example. Okay. So what I was there doing um, uh, was providing the mental management side because we were trying to increase the the pass rate without dropping the standards. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the nature of the work, well, two things get a higher pass rate, but also the nature of the work uh, you talked about is mentally draining, you know, yeah. and uh, amongst operational snipers, the rate of PTSD is almost a hundred percent of my peers. Really? Yeah. The guys have actually, there's guys who qualify, take the course and they go off to do something else. But the guys who actually go and work, it's almost a hundred percent. What would you say that's from? Is just because you can see the person more so? It's, it's, you talked about being switched on. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're in the, we call it condition yellow on the arousal. Uh, the arousal, I just wanted to work the word arousal into a conversation. <laughs> but um, uh, on the arousal curve, we talk about condition yellow on Colonel Cooper's color-coded um, system. As a sniper, there is little to no opportunity to decompress. Mm-hmm. And the Army is desperately trying to do a better job of it. Uh, but they've got a million different things to do. So when you're a guy in a, in a rifle section or you're somebody in a tank or you know, you're know you somebody on a ship, I can imagine, there's some time to relax and unwind. But when there's one or two or four of you alone in the middle of Afghanistan mountains, you're either unconscious or you are in condition yellow to orange. Mm-hmm. You are mentally switched on. So after the military, I actually became a medical radiological technologist, like an x-ray tech. Mm. And part of my training was doing functional MRIs, a little bit, just not much. It's a separate job, but I, I learned a little bit about it. And the, uh, the radiologist, the doctor would point to a part of the brain and say, that's depression. That's PTSD. Because I was just about to ask, like, what it, you know, does it change your brain? hundred yeah. percent. PTSD is a physical injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has neurological and, and other effects, uh, uh, psychosocial effects. But it is a physical injury. When you're continually, and you know this from policing, when you're continually in a condition, yellow, orange, or red, uh, parts of your brain, the lizard parts of your brain, we call them, uh, they physically grow in size. Hmm. And like a muscle that you work continually that gets bigger, uh, these become bigger and stronger and kick out more chemicals and electrical energy. Uh, that that causes that that arousal or emergency state in our bodies. 
So it's, it's being in a continual state of, of readiness without decompression. Uh, and it's not unique to sniping, but in the operational guys who've gone out and done the job for protracted periods of time, it's near 100%. Yeah. Uh, whether they've acknowledged it or not. Yeah. Um, and that seemed to stretch across time. Keith Cunningham, my coach that I mentioned earlier, uh, completely different story. He was Canadian and ended up as a, a honest-to-God Ranger Lerp sniper in Vietnam. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, Keith knows this, but uh, I, I don't think he acknowledges how deeply the, the PTSD has affected him. He's handled it brilliantly, and he was part of the way, part of the reason I learned to handle it. Um, and that's so important to have that mentoring. Like people, man, if you're out there, acknowledge that, that this kind of stuff it, is real, and it doesn't matter how big and strong and tough you are, it is literally a physical change. It's a biological response to what you do. So be prepared to uh, to go and get support in the same way that if your knee hurts, and mine sure as hell did this morning, yeah. uh, you know, if you notice change, or more importantly, your your the people around you, people who love you, uh, notice change, go out and get the kind of support you would as if you, you needed physio. It's the same thing, and it's your duty and your responsibility to the people you love around you and the people you serve with and beside and the, the citizens you serve to go and get that help to make you better at what you do. So go, go and get the help you need, please. When I uh, was talking with that Dr. Carlton, uh, I asked him, you know, where can people go for help? Because we got into a little bit on, uh, you know, what is a psychologist? What's the, the mm -hmm. difference between all the terms? You hear uh, therapists, uh, there's mental health coaches. Mm -hmm. like what, who do you go talk to? And he listed off a ton of resources I was like, wow, I've never heard of one of these. Like, well, I don't yeah. know, is, you know, do we need a better marketing plan for a lot of these agencies and, and people to get out there to kind of spread the word? So um, we might look at something with him, uh, hopefully, yeah, uh, volunteering definitely. him for work, but um, maybe in the future doing something more with the PTSD, mental health aspect yeah. of things and just getting the word out there more so. And um, that, that's what you're doing. So. Yeah, you know, by bringing people like me on, by by advocating, and it's it's cool when the boss comes in or, or some civvy psychologist comes up and said these are that that's cool and all, but that doesn't really count. What counts is guys like you and I, people like you and I, talking to everyone else and saying, "Listen, this is a thing. Mm -hmm. um, I am giving you permission to go and get help," and that's what it is—a social permission from your peers that actually gets people to go. Mm -hmm. Or my 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 famous motivator is. Of course, it's not for you, but think about the people you love. Mm -hmm. You owe it to them. And I mean, who's not going to, who's going to resist that, right? Yeah. So it, it's advocacy. And uh, uh, like my wife and I, we are a support peer couple for a uh, program called COPE, Couple Over Overcoming PTSD Every Day. It's a, uh, a five-day and then a six-month program um, where it's couples dealing with PTSD and it's all first responders and military. And it's free, and it's available, and it's freaking fabulous. And at the very least, you get five days in a luxury resort in the Rockies. Uh, <laughs> it's awesome. It's a great program. Um, that's just one of the many programs available. And mm -hmm. that's available to all first responders. C-O-P-E, COPE. Um, you can look me up if you want any, any information or look directly for COPE. Uh, it's, it's a great program, and I encourage it for anybody that, that uh, is or loves a, a first responder of any kind. Yeah, and I'll get the uh, a link from you, sure. and we'll put it in the podcast description so people Absolutely. can have that. Um, just because I can't keep you here all day, yeah, yeah. Man, we could talk forever. There's a lot of questions I still have, but uh, sure. one thing I want to make sure I asked you was, 
since we're on kind of the similar topic, when you transition out of the military, what was that like? Because you're saying there's no mental health programs back in the day. No, it's brutal. So, you know, you go from being switched on all the time and you're with all the bros and you're out there uh, kicking ass. And then now you say, okay, I'm going to go back to civilian life. So what did that look like? It was brutal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, I mean, I still had, you know, I came out of high school and I left the military with no saleable skills uh, that didn't involve a paper hat and a drive through. Uh, so I had to go back to school like right away. Technically, I was still in the army when I was in school, uh, and it was super high pressure and super high stress. And I can't believe, it. and I did fail it, and I had to go back and repeat a year of it. Um, transitioning out of the military, I, I try and encourage people and say, "Listen, you are the same warrior you were when you were in, and even before. Like before you became a police officer, you had to imagine it, correct? Mm-hmm. Imagine being a cop. So uh, I tell people, you are a cop. You're just in your pre-hire phase." And now you're a cop in training. Now you're an operational cop. Uh, now you're a cop trainer or you're a cop leader. You know, you get promoted in the ranks. Um, when we retire, we're still the same people. Mm-hmm. We're just in a different phase of our service. Like, I can't do what 25-year-old me did. I mean, I'd love to still be running around the mountains, kicking indoors and shooting people in the face. But um, I can't do that anymore. But 25-year-old me cannot do what I can do now. Mm-hmm. And that's mentor and encourage and explain and, and validate and, and all the other things I do. Um, so I'm the same warrior, just in a different phase of my life. Yeah. And I encourage people to recognize that. I, I don't know what it's like for police, but in the military, when you're introduced, it's always kind of the same script. Uh, it's uh, your name and rank, uh, the courses you have, usually the deployments, uh, and what your current job is. So this is Sergeant Click. He's a sniper and a pathfinder. Um He's been to Somalia and Kosovo and a couple other places, but he's currently the operations NCO at the divisional headquarters. Mm. All of those things disappear the day we leave. The day we take the uniform off, they're gone. But what remains is us. It's the qualities and characteristics and character that we brought to the job that led us to all those things of rank, of qualifications, of tours. Uh, and they remain after. Mm-hmm. All those other things are temporary and, and, and they're gone. But who we are and our qualities, characteristics, and character are what remains after. And that doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And that's still what we have to offer. Um, through things like the EPA or regimental associations or my own efforts like this CR64 rifle craft I do. I do train civilians. That's the bulk of what I do mm-hmm. um, in, mental marks- in marksmanship and mental management. Uh, but I do have the opportunity from time to time over the years. I've worked with different police services and and still working with the military where I can offer that perspective. And again, it's <clears throat> it's great to have, like they had a doctor come in and explain the effect of terminal ballistics. And it was great, but like he's never shot anybody in the liver. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's probably killed more people than I have. He's a doctor. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you need somebody who's been there, done that. Yes. You know, you know, in your own profession, there's those old yeah. dudes that like, they've got the street cred. They've, they've done it for real. Those are the people we tend to listen to mm. rather than the book experts. So um, when you get out of the military, I encourage people to realize they're still the same people. Yeah. Uh, for me, no saleable skills. I went back to school, became a medio- medical radiological technologist because it, it uh, pays great. And it's not that demanding once you get yeah. through the training. The training was brutal. 
Oh, yeah. God's, I had a firm grip on the bottom of that academic bell curve. <laughs> there were some smart people in that class. So uh, how do you go from that to, well, you're the owner of a company now? Yeah, well, I, um, I did it for about 12 years. And uh, looking back on it, when I, when I did some, actually when I did the COPE program I talked about, um, we drew a timeline of, of events that were related to PTSD, things that we chose to do and things we didn't choose to happen to us. And I realized that only about a year and a half after I graduated, I was starting to have uh, interpersonal conflict with some of my coworkers. Um, and I sought out and I got a job where I worked pretty much by myself and it was ideal. Mm-hmm. It wasn't too demanding. But yet after 12 years, I could see my physical and, and mental health, uh, despite all my efforts, starting to decline again. So I'm like, yeah, that's it. I'm done. Uh, so I retired. And what I can still contribute and what, I can, what still fulfills me is, is this uh, endless expansion of my own ignorance, I call it. This process of learning. Every time I learn something, I realize I don't know something else. Yeah. And that's what CR64 has been. You know, I've interacted through it with fabulous people uh, right around the country. And there's alumni in Ukraine right now. Um, I've met all these fabulous people and learned so much more. Uh, by doing this. So that's that's what I'm doing now. Can you tell me, what does the name mean or where does it come from? It, it's an amalgam. Thank you. It's, it's a good question. Uh, the As you know, uh, certainly at the time, I trained with the Evident Police Service, did their basic sniper course and, and did some exercises with them. Uh, the Sierra call signs were the sniper call signs. Okay. And in the Canadian Airborne Regiment in the Pathfinder Platoon, the call sign for the snipers in Pathfinder Platoon is 6-4. Mm, okay. Uh, one, two, and three are uh, assault, security, and support, and then six, four was the snipers. So mm. it's a, a call sign amalgam. Okay. So how busy does that keep you now? It could be a full-time deal if I wanted it to be, but I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I prefer uh, eh, quality over quantity is not the right term. I, I try to do as much as I can uh, for people that that I can think I can support. Mm-hmm. but I don't let it take over my life. Yeah, There's lots of fabulous schools that can teach you to press triggers and do it very well. Rob Furlong's fabulous. Call sign 66. Uh, Milcon out in Ontario. Uh, there's lots of good trainers out there. My forte and my strength and where I can do it. And I, and I do. We, do. we do custom training. It's whatever people want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had people come out and, and do just wind for a day. I uh, run seminars on on uh, just training techniques, but whatever people want to do. So a lot of what I do is fundamentals, <clears throat> excuse me, but it's always from the mental perspective. And we spend a lot of time teaching you how to learn and teaching you how how and what to practice. So does somebody just get a hold of you and say, you know, I want to learn how to shoot this type of mm-hmm. gun or mm-hmm. and in this situation? Yeah. Uh, and then you also build in a component for the mental side of things. Absolutely. Like some people, a good example would be the uh, precision hunter type person. You know, I've been hunting for years, but you know, like I've been missing shots and blah, blah, blah. Cool. So we bring them in. Uh, I give them a training plan ahead of time. They look at it, they approve it. And we go out and we, uh, we talk about fundamentals. Uh, we walk them through the actual, like the technical aspect, like what's the left elbow doing? Mm. How does the right hand grip the rifle? How does our head mount the rifle? What are we supposed to see? But we also talk about the mental program. We teach them to visualize and preload what they want to happen into the subconscious. We teach them to distract the conscious so that the subconscious can come forward and do things intuitively, like scanning a crowd. Yeah. Uh, and then we teach them to replay or rewrite after to reinforce that. So what we're doing is we're increasing the probability of a strong performance on demand under pressure. 
when you were, because you said you started this whole uh, the mental journey on shooting way, way back. Now, when you left the military, and sorry, how long did you say you're doing X-ray? I did it for about 12, 12 years, years, but I started doing CR64 things as well too, yeah. Oh, okay. So I was going to ask, were you shooting throughout that whole oh, yeah. time too? You still go out, yep. but just kind of recreationally or are you still doing uh, competitions? Recreationally, uh, I <laughs> ended up shooting the uh, World Masters Games in 95, I think. No, it was after that. No, sorry, 2005. I think we had the World Masters Games here. And I walked away with a gold medal in F-class turret rifle. Oh, wow. You know, so what I've learned certainly across, applied across. Like I never shot F-class before. Mm-hmm. But what I learned uh, applied to to that. It's just for listeners, can you say say what F class is? So F class is <clears throat> is basically target rifle with a scope and bipod. Uh, you're at a fixed distance. I think we were 600 meters for that one, uh, and you fire a bullseye style target. And it's really about managing wind, managing yourself. We say shooting is about the control of motion and emotion, mm-hmm. and it's it's a ni- at least 90 percent, as I said, mental. So um, being able to lie down there and shoot when it counts is different than just going to the range and having a great day planking with your buddies Yeah. when it, nothing counts, right? Yeah. So when the bad guy shows up and when you have to actually shoot the bad guy, when the deer of a lifetime walks out or when it's your turn in competition, that's on demand and it's under pressure. Mm-hmm. You don't get to choose when and it really counts. Yeah. So we teach the mental process of, and the technical process of firing a perfect shot on demand under pressure. And we, we teach people what and how to practice. And it's not just me. I draw on the uh, active duty snipers from the two battalions. We get them to come out. I've got a pool of great, super experienced, recently retired sniper instructors that come out as well. Uh, we do large groups on weekends starting again in October. As Steve explained, the range has been shut down for a good part of the year. Yeah. But uh, uh, we're running October, mid-October, we're running a, a, a course. And I do on weekdays. I do groups of one to four people mm-hmm. and it's all customized training to whatever the, uh, the group or the individual wants. Yeah. I see you on the schedule when I go out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got lots of dates there, but we haven't been able to pull them off this year, but yeah. yeah, Like I have no idea what we're teaching on October. It'll be whatever the first few people that sign up want it to be. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. Um, well, we're at about an hour and a half. I generally keep it around yeah, here because yeah. I want to keep you all day. Uh, there's definitely more we can get into. Sure. We'll look to have you back again. Absolutely. Um, but is there anything you think we missed that should you want to say before we go? Anything you need to plug? Just uh, where people could connect with you? Yeah, you sure you can connect with me. Uh, I have the world's worst website, Sierra64.com. Um, uh, just want to say, you know, if there's anything we can do to support you, those who are on the job, uh, if you're on any other job and there's anything we can do to support you and your performance, please reach out. And if I don't know, if it's not something I do, I can certainly connect you with somebody who does. Mm-hmm. Um, happy to find it. More, I care less that you train with me than that you do train. Uh, and again, the lessons that you learn on the rifle range are the ones that you can take off and, and make your life better in every aspect. 100%. So, yeah. 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 And uh, full disclosure, I am sponsored by EM Precision, Steve, who was, mm-hmm. who was out here with the Chaz thing. Uh, shooting extreme long range because I hate money. Um, yeah, I thought the rifle was chambered for 338. It's chambered for $8 bills. Yeah, he um, said, uh, well, what did he say? An, a round cost. I was oh, like, anywhere yeah. from 5 to $10. Yeah. Yeah, These. it's funny. We just got limited in uh, 10,000 joules, right? And that really mm-hmm. cut the short sport, mm-hmm. the sport short, pardon me. And it's funny because like, 
I don't think there's too many drive-bys being done by $20,000 rifles with, with $15 ammunition. Yeah, blowing out the windows of their own cars. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Shooting yeah. off a 50. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, EM Precision has been a great, uh, and Steve is one of the smartest people I've met in my life. Um, but uh, EM Precision has been a great sponsor, and uh, Chaz is a great range. Come out and try it, please. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they say, if there's anything I can do to support people, please just let me know. Great. Well, we'll uh, we'll wrap it there, and we'll look to have you back on. So appreciate Absolutely. your time. Yeah, thanks very much. It's been fun.